I want you to imagine that you grew up in New England. Now, if you didn't grow up in New England, you need to bear with me for a moment. We're going to pick, we're going to all have a new hometown. You're going to have the hometown of Plymouth. And you grew up in New England. And I want you to imagine that you always loved football and you always wanted to play football. And God blessed you with the gift of physical strength and intellect and knowledge. And you were able to grow up playing football and you did well. Now, growing up in Plymouth, who did you always want to play for? You always wanted to play for the New England Patriots. You wanted to be the next, not Drew Bloodsoe, but the next Tom Brady. Take the Patriots to a greater level of glory, actually to become the Michael Jordan of football. That's what you were hoping for your hometown Pats. And so as you got older, you played Pee Wee, you did well. You played Pop Warner, you did really well. You got to high school, and you started off as the third-string quarterback. And in the second game, what happened? Both the quarterbacks ahead of you tore both ACLs in the same game. And you didn't feel good about that, but you had an opportunity. And so now you start playing and you do great. And you have a great career in high school football. And you get to college. And where do you go? Boston College. Because you want to bring the glory back to New England sports. Matt Ryan, who? You're going to be the next great sports hero that's going to make it. So when you think of New England, when you think of Boston, you think of college sports because of you and you do great, and you have a wonderful college career. And then it's time to get drafted. And you know what's happened? The Patriots are bad. And you have, in our hypothetical situation, not real life, bear with me now, you have this wonderful opportunity because you found out the Pats have the first overall pick. How excited are you? Because you're going to go number one, and they're going to pick you. However, on draft night, you get a call, and you find out, because they leak it through the press, the Buffalo Bills have traded for the number one overall pick, and now you find yourself not drafted by your hometown Pats, but you are getting ready to play for the Buffalo Bills, the team that lost not one, not two, not three, but four consecutive Super Bowls in the 90s, who you have grown up making fun of and disliking, and you wish that the team could go bankrupt. <laughs> but you're drafted. And then weird things start happening. You have an opportunity to play as a rookie, and you become the quarterback. And you do really well. And very strangely, it almost seems like there's supernatural guiding because the team has a winning record and goes to the playoffs. And you lead them. Now the whole time, you're kind of grumpy about it. You have a bad attitude. You say, I never really wanted to play for Buffalo. You know, I'm hoping just to do well enough that I can eventually get traded to the Patriots. But you keep doing well, and you go to the playoffs, and you start winning in the playoffs. And weird things start happening. You get to the Super Bowl, and you win the Super Bowl. And now you've brought a Super Bowl to Buffalo. And you sit outside the stadium. <laughs> and you sit outside the stadium, and you take off the jersey, and you throw it, and you're mad. And you say, I hate the Buffalo Bills. This championship means nothing for me. I just want the team to go bankrupt. That's the story of Jonah. People have a hard time understanding what the story of Jonah really is about. It's really about whose team am I on? If you are playing for a team and you're going through the motions but your heart isn't in it, you're not cheering for them, you're not wanting their best, are you really on that team? You're getting a paycheck you're getting the glory, but you're not even taking it. And you're growing up as that kid who's the quarterback who's playing for the Buffalo Bills and you hate the Buffalo Bills. 
That's the story of Jonah, and that's the story of us. We, like never before in 2023, have an opportunity to air our resentments, to get feedback on our resentments, and to have this false sense of thriving on how much we resent everything going around us. It happens over and over in our society. And here's the question. In the book of Jonah, we're going to summarize. So in the book of Jonah, we're calling the series Faith After Failure because you've got this guy, and I want to be really clear of where we are. If this is your first time joining us, we're so glad you're here. Let's make sure you don't miss anything out. You've got this guy living thousands of years ago in a northern part of a divided kingdom after a civil war. His name is Jonah, and God speaks to him, and God says, hey, Jonah, you need to go to Nineveh. What's Nineveh? Nineveh is the seat of power of the Assyrians. They are the enemies. They're worse than the Buffalo Bills, many times worse. They actually win. Now, so you have this opportunity. He says, hey, go to Nineveh. What does he do instead? He gets on a boat, and he tries to go to the other end of the world, tries to go to Spain. Now, a series of misadventures happen, and eventually, after being swallowed by a fish, spit out on land, Jonah finds himself going to Nineveh. And he does what God says, and this is what we saw last week. He follows what God tells him to do, and it goes really well, like shockingly well, like winning the Super Bowl well. But now you're going to find him in this final part of the book, in chapter 4, you're going to see that he's mad, miserable, and having resentments, and he's sitting outside the city hoping that things won't work out even though they have. Now for us, there's so many parallels. There are some times where we have messages that we can't relate to. I don't know about you, but for me, this is my number one struggle. I live my life. I love Jesus. I want to do the right thing. I pray for people to change, they don't. And now I have to reconcile with that. And I have to look and say, I'm praying for this person for five years. I know that God's timing isn't mine, but it's still so frustrating. And then I have to decide, what do I do with my resentment? Am I going to let it crush me, or am I going to hand it over to God and say, you know, Lord, I don't have the ability to control everything, but I do know that it's important who I'm cheering for. And so here's our big idea. Am I cheering for the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? It's a, it's a phrase and a theological idea that sometimes we throw out there. Hey, the kingdom of God. We prayed the Lord's Prayer, and it talks about the kingdom of God. Here's a very simple way to understand what it means, the kingdom of God, and then how we cheer for it. God is establishing a reign and rule on earth. It starts especially with the church. The people of God love God and are living out his will and his way, and he's using the church to redeem the world. It is a place of redemption. We know that Jesus on the cross canceled the power and guilt of sin, but we know that things are not over yet, that Jesus has not returned and there's the final consummation. So what we now understand is we're living in this place, theologians, and I won't get into it, call it the already not yet, but here's what we need to know. The kingdom of God is being established by God on earth, and I can participate in it, but if I participate in it and I come to church and I'm miserable, and I pray for people, but I regret doing it, and I serve people, but I wish that I was home playing Xbox, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, I'm part of the kingdom of God and God's work, 
but is my heart really in it? Do you ever face this? We say, hey, God has a plan of restoration. I know what God says. I know what Jesus says. I know what Jesus says about enemies, but my heart's really not in it. So I invite you, don't be like our silly example in the beginning. Say, hey, today I'm on the team God, and I'm going to start cheering for the kingdom of God. I'm going to start cheering for it in my personal life, in my marriage, in my family, in my workplace. When I see someone who struggles, I'm going to pray for God's best for their life. I'm not going to try to change them. I'm going to know that it's God who changes them, but I'm going to be kind and have compassion. And when good things happen in their life, no matter the resentment I have, no matter what they did that look five years ago, you know what I'm talking about. That person who looked at you the wrong way five years ago, and you've never let it go. So we're going to cheer for the kingdom of God. And we're going to say, amen, Lord, you're working in that person's heart. And if and when God changes them, we're not going to say, well, I still owed an apology for that dirty look five years ago. We're going to say, you know what, Lord? The fact that you're working in people's lives, that means that life is going to be better. I'm going to cheer for that. I'm going to look forward to it. I'm going to advocate for it. So that takes us to the story of Jonah. If you turn with me in your Old Testament, we're going to be in the Old Testament book of Jonah. It's our final week, not only of Jonah, but in the Old Testament. Starting next week, we're going to be doing two months in the book of Colossians. Where is Jonah? If you open your Bible, it's a little bit beyond halfway towards the right side. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 4. Rodney read it earlier, so I'm going to summarize and we're going to ask some questions. Jonah, I want to be clear, never gets it. Jonah doesn't cheer for the kingdom of God. Did you hear that? He's miserable. He's upset. God's speaking directly to him in his life, like not through the Bible, but directly to him. And the guy can't just say, you know what, God? I get that things are complicated, but thank you for speaking to me. No, he just says, I'm, I'm so mad. I have these feelings. I have these resentments. And they're too much. They're crushing for me. And my friends, don't make the mistake of Jonah. So here's the first question we're going to ask. Let's be unlike Jonah. Will I turn my resentments over to God? Will I turn them over? Will I turn my resentments over to God? What is a resentment? Oftentimes I had expectations, right? Maybe my spouse. My spouse is supposed to, right? We took those wedding vows and they're all about my spouse. My spouse is supposed to honor and cherish me, right? That's the whole point of the wedding, right? Well, no. But, so here's the thing. I have expectations of my spouse. And I make my spouse God to me. Instead of making God God, I make my marriage or my spouse God. And now I put my spouse on a pedestal. And now I'm expecting these things. And then my spouse makes a wonderful spouse but a lousy God. And now my spouse has disappointed me. And I'm resenting my spouse. And I come home and I'm resenting it. We do this not just in our marriages. We do this with friendships. We put a friendship on a pedestal. And now that person is human, they're a sinner, and they go from being our friend to being someone we despise and we resent. There's a better way. Can we turn our resentments over to God? Can we say, you know what, Lord? You call me not to be miserable, 
but to live a life where I understand that there's certain things I just need to hand for you, that I can cheer for the kingdom of God, that I can say you're working, you're leading, you're guiding, and it's not going to be on my timing, but that's okay. I want to look at a couple verses real quick in this part, because here's what we need to see. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah. He became very angry. He had expectations, and it turned into resentments and anger. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? I know that is why I ran to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now. I'd rather be dead than alive if, I, if what I predicted will not happen. So he's got a resentment. Jonah has like a half-truth with his faith. He knows what God is. He knows that God is loving, compassionate, and he's not okay with that because he's got the wrong perspective. He's looking and saying, God, I'm mad at those people up north who've been tormenting us for generations, and I want you to crush them. And the problem is, is that God isn't a God of crushing people. God is always working for redemption. That's why we say, what am I cheering for? Am I cheering for the kingdom of God, for redemption, for restoration, and for renewal? Or am I looking and being like, ugh, I just really resent those people. I have a major issue with them. He's angry, complaining, and overreacting. And he's stuck in middle school. You remember middle school? Don't know what year it was. For me, it was, I always think, 2001, seventh grade. I had a teacher, Mr. Cook. I couldn't stand Mr. Cook. I had a resentment to him. He was my history teacher. And I actually was trying to really think about this this week. I don't remember why the resentment started. Think about a resentment you have. Do you have any that you don't remember how it began? Kind of like the feud in Romeo and Juliet. You know it's real. It crushes your life. But you're not exactly sure how we got there. I remember things I did, like one time I went on his computer when he was out of the room and tried to change his lesson plans, and um, then, I, then I had a change of heart and I didn't. Um, I remember times I said really nasty things to him. I remember really resenting him, but I can't really remember the exact moment that my resentment began. I can remember times he would tell me, good job, and give me an A on a history quiz, but Anytime this guy looked at me, I wanted bad things to happen to him. He's the first teacher that I ever wanted to get fired. Growing up, I always looked at teachers and wanted to learn. Mr. Cook, I wanted fired. But then there was a day where I, seventh grade, very interesting year, because that year I got 42 detentions. My homeroom was not, in my mind, my homeroom. It was the detention room. And here's what happened. I was accused of saying something I didn't say after school. And I had an opportunity to go down to the principal's office to explain myself. And truthfully, I'd had a tough year. It was hard. And I really resented this teacher. And I had a lot of feelings. And seventh grade is a weird time if you've ever been in seventh grade. But here's the thing. I got called down. I went in expecting to get annihilated, expecting to get suspended, expelled, 
cast off to military boot camp, whatever. You know how our seventh grade minds are. And what ended up happening is the principal said, oh, uh, Mr. Cook was here first. He actually saw it all. He vouched for you. You didn't say anything. You're good. Um, you're having a tough year. You need to, like, shape up your attitude, young man. But this time you were okay. Mr. Cook vouched for you. He was just a teacher. He was not some evil guy. Mr. Cook was just Mr. Cook. And for the same of us, what am I cheering for? Am I cheering for people's best for the kingdom of God? Am I cheering for, hey, I want good things for your life? Or am I just arbitrarily holding resentments and not wanting people's best and not wanting to see God's restoration in their life? I have two questions for you. Question number one. Do I find myself taken down by resentments? Is this your struggle? If it is, something that's really helpful. Take some time and if you're a journal person, journal about it. Write about it this week. Say, okay, yes, resentments have been part of my story. I don't want them to be part of a story. So God, this is my struggle. Lord, would you take it from me? Because here's my second question. Am I willing to turn my resentments over to God? Jonah's not. But if I've got a resentment that is arbitrary, so much of the time it's sillier than we remember. So much of the time other people are willing to move on and the person keeping the resentment going is who? So much of the time it's me. And don't think that your pastor is up here just like telling you what to do. Oh, Laura, do I, where's Laura? Do I struggle with this? Yes. Probably number one struggle for me. And the reason I want to be honest with you about that is because we got to do better, right? We got to cheer for the kingdom of God. We got to say we have an opportunity to do something really amazing for Jesus in our families. We have an opportunity to do something really amazing for Jesus in our schools, in our workplaces. Not to hit people over the head with the Bible and to be the Pharisaic people that always act like we're right, but to say, hey, I'm going to turn my resentments over to God. I'm going to cheer for God's work, and I'm going to see when amazing things happen, and I'm going to celebrate it. Jonah can't do it, but we, our story isn't over. His is, ours is not. Here's another question. Question number two. Well, I pray for people to change. You're going to notice in the book of Jonah, he prays for himself. He thanks God for saving him. That's the whole thing that happens in chapter 2. But Jonah does not pray for the people to change. He's upset when they change. He's mad. He's resentful. But what about us? Are we willing to look and say, instead of just being angry at people, can I be praying for people? This is a major thing that we see in this text. It says that Jonah is just angry at. Think about the times you're angry. I want you to, we're doing a lot of personal reflection today, and that's good. We're concluding a series, and this is an opportunity to say, hey, what are the implications of the Jonah story? If I've been here all four weeks, maybe I've gotten all of it. Maybe I'm just here today. I can get a lot from God just in one day. God, what are your implications for me? What's, what comes next for me? Am I angry at people most of the time, or am I praying for people? I want to give you an example. We often talk about this missionary, and his name was Jim Elliott. Just out of curiosity, who knows who Jim Elliott is? Because that's 
I'll tell a little bit of the story. So Jim Elliott was a missionary in the 1950s, post-World War II, young man, gave his life to Jesus, and now wanted to do amazing things for the gospel. Sounds pretty good, right? Now, Jim Elliott is praying for this tribe of people from Central America, and they're known to be two things. First of all, they're not a Christian tribe, and second of all, they're known for being a very violent tribe. And so he starts praying, and he starts saying, Lord, would you work in my heart? Would you work in their hearts? And would you allow Christians to go there and to end the cycle of violence and instead to allow these people to seek you? And so he goes with other missionaries. And almost right away, he's killed by them. And it seems like a total disaster. And if we would have stopped it there, his wife would have had a major resentment. Elizabeth, her husband goes down out of love for Jesus, out of love for people, and now he's killed by those people, and that's a great opportunity for resentment, isn't it? But here's the story of Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot keeps praying for them. She doesn't want her husband's sacrifice for Jesus to go in vain, and missionaries keep praying for the people, keep working for them, and now the tribe, there's a big church there, and they're nonviolent because they're cheering for the kingdom of God, because it's not, hey, these people killed my husband. I now want them to have miserable lives. Hey, I understand that if they repent, if they turn to Jesus, that will end the cycle of violence, and more people like Jim won't be killed, and more good will happen. If the kingdom of God is at work, that will have benefits for everyone, and we can let over our resentments, and we can say, you know what, we don't need to realize anything other than this. Two questions. A lot of personal reflection. Number one, do I usually find myself angry at or praying for people? That's kind of a gut check, isn't it? I'm going to give you a life hack. If you're a person who has a lot of feelings, we call it in my household, I have a three-year-old, and we, we talk to her, we say, Ruby, she's almost four, and we say to Ruby, you know, you have big feelings, and a three-year-old gets that. We get that, too. If you're a person with big feelings, every time your body starts doing one of these things, feeling angry, feeling jealous, feeling bitter at someone, your body is doing something very helpful. It's telling you, hey, that's a chance to pray. Every time you start feeling angry for someone, at someone, towards someone, resenting them, whether they're in the room or not. Not that you should stop everyone and pray necessarily out loud, but you can turn and say, wow, thank you, God, for giving me that sense that right now I just need to pray for that person. Lord, I cheer for your kingdom, and I want to see good things happen in that person's life. Lord, would you work your best in them? Would you allow them to experience the redemption that comes from Jesus, the renewal that comes from the Holy Spirit? And Lord, can we start to see that person just changing for the better. Am I willing to turn my anger into prayer? Now, the problem is, if you read the rest of Jonah, it's a really strange story at the end. Did you notice? So there's all this other stuff that starts to happen. So now Jonah goes outside the city, and he's waiting there because he wants God to still smite the city. Is God going to smite the city? He's not. And so Jonah's frustrated, but God does act. Isn't that always interesting? We want God to do something. Have you ever prayed and you're saying, hey, I don't know why God's not answering my prayer, but God's doing other things. And God is with me, 
and showing me his goodness and showing me his mercy and compassion. And while I'm praying for X, he's actually doing Y. Here's what is happening with Jonah. He wants negative stuff to happen to Nineveh, but God sends him a, a plant to provide him shade so that he's feeling comfort outside and he has a chance to reflect. And now Jonah feels a little better. But the problem is, is it's a temporary thing and a worm comes, eats the plant, and now Jonah's very sad about the loss of the plant. And God points out his hypocrisy and he says, Jonah, you're upset about a plant and you have pity for a plant, but I have pity for the people. I have pity for the animals. Why is it okay, Jonah, for you to say, I'm mad at all these people, but I love this plant? You have the wrong perspective. You need to be cheering for goodness in people's lives, for redemption. And so here's our final question. Will I celebrate when those who I struggle with or disgust me, there's different levels, right? Sometimes people disgust me, but sometimes the people who I struggle with, Will I celebrate when those I struggle with change? This is our dilemma. We act like Jonah is a 2,500-year-old story, don't we? Oh, Jonah's got nothing to do with me. Yeah, this guy, can you believe it? He does good things for God, and he sits miserable outside of the city, and then there's a plant and a worm, and that has nothing to do with my life. And this isn't judgment or shame. This is a wonderful gift. Here's the hope, right? So here's the hope and the good news from all this. We have the opportunity to celebrate when the people we struggle with change. We have the opportunity when we see God's kingdom start to expand to say, wow, I don't need to be angry at that. I'm praying for it and cheering for God's redemptive work in my family. When my family member, who I always fight with at the Thanksgiving table, we all have that person, right? Extended family member. Think of that person. When that person, when God works in their life, am I willing to give that person a second chance? Am I willing to, maybe I don't have to be now best friends with that person, but I can say, thank you, God, because now you've done something good. Now I'm seeing redemption happening. Thank you, Lord, for expanding your kingdom. God works in the lives of people you and I have the most trouble with. There's this interesting thing. Jonah feels bad about this plant. Have you ever felt really bad about losing a dog? Or a cat? Or a goldfish? Or my daughter has decided that the raccoon that gets into our trash, his name is Rocky, and she wants good things for him, and she feels good for the trash that's driving our family, the uh, raccoon that's driving our family crazy. We feel bad for animals, and we have pity and compassion for them, but then we look at the people that make us uncomfortable, and we don't. And you know who those people are. Maybe it's the person with the political beliefs you totally disagree with. We're entering a political season. You're going to see a lot of people who you really struggle with, whether you're on the left, on the right, up, down, apathy, whatever. You're going to have people that you're going to feel different than, and you're going to struggle with. Maybe they'll disgust you, but they'll at least be a struggle for you. Now the question is, what is my focus? I love what Philip Yancey said. I'm going to put up a, a graphic, and I'm going to explain this graphic. When we think of what's so amazing about grace and God's gift, Philip Yancey uses this example. The serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer 
did awful things, horrible things, and I'm not going to get into what he did. If you're familiar, well, I'm sorry. If you're not, you're better off. But he's a great example to know this. Jeffrey Dahmer claimed, he made a claim in prison that he had given his life to Jesus and that he had changed. And people really struggled with this. People really had a hard time. But what Philip Yancey says is what we need to remember is we don't know if Jeffrey Dahmer was real or not with this. But what we do know is God is strong enough to change even a Jeffrey Dahmer. So I have questions. And they're, they're tough questions. Am I finding myself cynical when people are changing? Maybe I'm someone who uses a lot of air quotes and I say, you know, I'm really seeing people change around me, but I'm really not sure if that's sincere. I really struggle with that. Okay, thank you for being honest. Me too. I've told you, this is the sermon for David. There's some times where there's different messages that resonate with people. I often live out Jonah 4 in my life. And maybe you find that too. But when people are claiming to change and we start to see change, can we be celebrating and continuing to pray for them? When that coworker, when that boss, when that neighbor, when that cousin, when that relative, whoever that we struggle with, when that person either professes a change or starts to change, can we start celebrating for them? And am I willing to quit judging and let God be the judge? Here's the challenge. There's an idea in American culture and politics. I can defeat my enemy. Have you noticed this? This is the big part of rhetoric. The people who are going to get up during the election season on all aisles, whether it's national levels, local levels, anything, they're going to essentially give you this, this false gospel. They're going to say this. I can defeat the enemy. My way is better than everything else, and you should give me your support. Now, the challenge is, is that when we just get on with this, I can defeat my enemy, that's a mentality that saturates all of life. Have you ever gone on All Things Plymouth or a Facebook group and noticed that there's sometimes people who don't want to fight about things, who don't want to trash people, and so they literally, if they're about to say, hey, where's a good place to get discount shoes? They have to put a disclaimer, and they have to say, hey, please be nice to me. No weird answers. Can you just go ahead and answer my question? They have to do that disclaimer because this idea of I can defeat my enemy has just saturated society. If we as the church are offering that to people, we're no better than culture. I actually will say we're worse. One of the things you'll see in the Old Testament, the prophets, the people who talk about what's going on and what comes in the future, often are the hardest on Israel when Israel is being just as bad as everybody else because Israel has the chance to do better. We have the chance to do better. We have the opportunity. We are presenting an alternative to the garbage of society. We're not just saying, hey, today you come to church, you pray to Jesus, you sing your worship song, um, you figure out who you don't like, you pray for them, but you don't like them. No, the problem is, is that that's not God's best for us as a church. That's not God's best for us as individuals and as a community. We have an opportunity to be growing into this next season of life. We're going into a brave new world, and you can feel good about the future of society, or you can feel bad about it, but either way, we have an opportunity to be praying for people, to be celebrating when change happens, and to be working on our local level here to see people give their life to Jesus, 
to pray with people, to work with those who need transitional support, not to stigmatize people and to, and to say, oh, I really struggle with them, but to say, wow, the gospel means that the work of Jesus saturates every part of my life in every day and every way. That I don't simply need to say, I'm going to be miserable. My question is, and here's the big idea, am I cheering for the kingdom of God? We have a wonderful opportunity to do it. If you've been doing awesome on this, then God gives you on the team a high five. Great job. Keep going. If you're struggling with this, I'm going to give you two implications. Number one, I need to acknowledge my resentments. If I can't acknowledge it, I can't give it to God. If it's just happening and I, and I just can't be honest about it, maybe today all I have to do is say, you know what, Lord? I know that what you're calling me to do today is simple. I need to name my resentments and hand them over to you. And maybe the implication is that I do feel anger. And maybe I'm not screaming at people, reacting at people, but I'm feeling a lot of bitterness and hurt and frustration. Those moments, I can use them as cues and I can start praying for people. And so we're going to invite the band forward, the prayer team forward. We're going to keep it simple today. We end messages by inviting you to come pray with a prayer team that's made of some various peoples, including elders and others. If you are struggling with resentment, let's give it to God today. Maybe we simply need to name them and hand them over and see what he's going to do. Maybe we need to really say, wow, Lord, I've gotten off track. I'm not following your best for my life. I invite us to pray together and then come down and let's, let's give these to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask that as we enter this new season, Lord, that we would not make the mistakes of Jonah, that we would not be so focused on the people we struggle with that we could never see your goodness and your redemption and your plans and purposes. Lord, I ask that you would do a work in each of our hearts today. And those resentments, Lord, I ask that we could hand them over to you to begin to see that you are calling us to be people who believe that you will change others. And then that gives us an opportunity to work together for the kingdom. Lord, I ask that at those times you need to soften our hearts. Lord, if that's today, soften our hearts. Soften my heart, Lord. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.